When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your trusty host, Liv. Well, friends, it's that time again for the intro to remind you to please come see me at the Vancouver Fan Expo if you are anywhere near Vancouver, BC. I'll be honest, I'm imploring you so often out of a complete fear that no one will show up because this is only the second event I've ever been a part of and it's the first one that isn't free. So both my ego and the amount of money I spent having merch made need you all to show up. 
But it's fan expo too. So if you're a fan of other nerd things, then you get multiple things in one here because my God, there is just so much going on at fan expo. You'll have endless ways to get your money's worth. I will be doing my second ever live show on Monday, February 17th. And don't worry, it's a holiday. I'll also be participating in podcasting 101 panels on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. All three days, I'll have a table where I'll be hanging out, selling merch, giving away free stickers, and chatting with whoever stops by. You a fan of Harry Potter, uh, Star Trek, Star Wars, all of those things can be gathered together into your appreciation of my podcast and all at Fan Expo. Anyway, I'm trying to convince you. Is it working? Okay, that's enough. It's time for more Aeneas. Where we last left our future Roman, we'd been thrown right into the action, Homer style, meeting Aeneas and the other remaining Trojans on their ships in search of Latium off the coast of Carthage, ancient Libya, which I should have pointed out, is modern Tunisia. The goddess Juno, Hera, loves Carthage most, and she has learned that it's destined to fall to someone of Trojan blood. She attempts to prevent Aeneas and the Trojans from reaching Carthage by calling in a favor from the god of the winds, Aeolus. But when Aeolus's storm is stopped by Neptune, the Roman name for Poseidon, god of the sea, Aeneas and the few Trojans left, well, they wash up on the shores of Carthage. Sorry, Juno. This is episode 71, Dido, the badass queen of Carthage. On the eve of their first night on this strange land, where they've stopped simply to rest, having survived such a treacherous storm, the Trojans settle in. Aeneas speaks to the men, reminding them what they're there to do, that they're trying to find Latium, where they will found a new city of Trojan blood. They've been through so much, he reminds them, they are strong and they will and can continue on to complete their journey. The men feast on the stags killed by Aeneas, remembering the men they've lost, the horrible fate some of them suffered. But meanwhile, Jupiter, Zeus, king of the gods, looks out across the sea. He looks down upon Libya, considering what he sees there. Venus, Aphrodite, speaks to Jupiter. She's sad, asking him what crime it is that Aeneas committed that would cause Jupiter to be so angry at him, to cause him and the Trojans so much suffering. Why are they being prevented from reaching Italy, where they've been headed all this time? She reminds Jupiter that it was his promise that from the Trojan bloodline there would come Romans, leaders to rule the entire region across the seas. Has it changed? She asks. Why are you now keeping them from their destiny? It was this promise of yours, she says, that made me feel just a tiny bit better as I watched Troy burn. I was consoled by the fact that such a great fate would come for those Trojans that survived the ruin. But now, I don't have any faith that this will come true. The men have been through so much in their journey. Is this all because of the anger of one person, your wife? Venus asks, choosing to be quite blunt now. Is all this drama, all this heartbreak and death because of your wife's anger? Jupiter smiles in what I can only imagine is quite the patronizing way, saying... 
No, I haven't forgotten my promise. You and your son, Aeneas, will get what you want. You'll get what I promised. Because this is bothering you so much, he tells her, I'll tell you what the fates have said. Jupiter tells Venus that Aeneas will reach Italy, wage war in the region, great wars against the tribes of Italy, wars that he will easily win, that he will raise up cities and bring laws to the region, that eventually he'll rule in Latium. He goes on, but honestly, it's pretty dry and there's lots of names that I don't know and don't want to try to explain to you guys. Really, the point here is that Jupiter is laying out the vision of what's to come after Aeneas finally does reach what will eventually become Rome. First, there's war, then some governing by some dudes, then the founding of a city called Alba Longa, more governing by some dudes, 300 years of it, really. That's how long the line of Hector will reign over the region, Jupiter tells Venus. Until, finally, he gets to the point, kind of. He tells her that a princess named Ilia will have twin sons with Mars, Ares, the god of war. At which Venus doesn't bat an eye, because I don't think we're doing romantic jealousies here, but I had to mention it. Anyway, this princess will have Mars's twins, and they'll be named Remus and Romulus. That's right, names you maybe know. Then, he says, Romulus will roll up wearing a she-wolf's hide, and he'll found the city of Mars, and he'll call his people Romans after himself, because he's super chill and definitely doesn't think super highly of himself. No news on what Romulus will do with his brother. We'll get there, I guess. Now we get to the good stuff, though, because Jupiter finishes by telling Venus that from there, there's no limit on the rule of the Romans. He gives them no limits of time or space. He grants them dominion without end. Which is where we get deep into the propaganda that is this epic. What is being told here through the voice of Jupiter is the idea that Rome has been fated to rule, essentially the entire world, forever. Augustus was all about never-ending and complete power. Still in book one here, and they've already laid out this idea that there's going to be some divine intervention that says Rome will rule everything forever. Super chill. But we can't forget the anger of Juno. Jupiter proceeds to reassure Venus that Juno will come around. She's bitter now, and it's caused only a little insanity. But she'll change, he says. She'll listen to wise counsel, and, he adds, together we'll foster the Roman people with love. Propaganda's still coming, though, because we've got Jupiter appearing hundreds and hundreds of years before what he's talking about, explaining how eventually in Rome, a guy they'll call Julius Caesar will be born, and oh man, will he be something else. Jupiter explains that this man, Julius Caesar, will be born of the Trojan blood, the same Trojan blood that lives in Aeneas, and he'll be goddamn glorious. You... Jupiter says to Venus, you will welcome him up to the heavens. He will be made a god. Once he's with us, the wars will end. The savage ways of the region will be civilized. And finally, Jupiter stops his speech and takes a damn breath. Okay, let's break down what Jupiter just spouted off to Venus. 
Aeneas will reach Italy, but it's hundreds and hundreds of years before Rome will actually be founded. He lays out how Remus and Romulus, the official mythical founders of Rome, will come from Aeneas's bloodline, if a long ways down. He lays out how Julius Caesar, a very real, real individual, also comes from Remus and Romulus's blood, which means that he comes from Aeneas's blood, and for that matter, lays out how Julius Caesar is now a god. But what this really means in the context of when and why the Aeneid was written is that Augustus, the first emperor of the Roman Empire and Julius Caesar's successor, is also, in a way, of Aeneas's blood. Now, Augustus was actually the adoptive heir of Caesar, but that seems to be neither here nor there. They were related. Augustus, in having Virgil write the Aeneid, is cementing himself as super fucking important because Caesar is a god now who's also born of the OG Roman blood. Again, propaganda. Augustus founded the Roman Empire, too. They were the Roman Republic before, and they'd gone through a whole load of civil war and unrest with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony and Cleopatra and honestly so many other people, both crazy and not. But this isn't a Roman history podcast, and I'm reciting these things from memory. (laughs) If you want to learn about Roman history not recited from memory, and specifically this time period, go listen to Ancient History Fangirl. Bonus is soon there's going to be a crossover episode with me, which was so fun to record. All in all, this mega speech by Jupiter is laying out the premise of the Aeneid, which is proof of just how incredible Augustus is and just how destined he is to rule Rome and to rule Rome when it's at its most impressive, its most powerful. Not to mention, Jupiter is saying that everyone else around Rome was savage before and that the Romans civilized them. So throw in some xenophobia for good measure. Ultimately, Augustus is setting himself up as a god because Julius Caesar is a god and Augustus is his heir. Augustus, emperor of Rome and god among men. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Once Jupiter has finished his epic propaganda-laden speech to Venus, he calls in Mercury, Hermes, messenger of the gods, to head down to Carthage to instruct them to welcome Aeneas and the Trojans. Jupiter asks that the queen of Carthage, yeah, the queen, she rules, there's no king, that's all caps in my script, Jupiter asks that the queen of Carthage, Dido, be told to welcome the Trojans, and that she, quite notably, and menacingly, doesn't know what her fate will be. Through Hermes, the heart of the Queen of Carthage is opened up for the Trojans on her shores. She and the city will welcome them with open arms. Aeneas, meanwhile, spends the night restlessly. His mind is racing and he can't fall asleep. So finally, when dawn is just starting to arrive, he goes walking with Achates, the companion of his, armed with javelins. They walk along the unknown land, but suddenly, unexpectedly, he finds himself face to face with his own mother, Venus herself. But of course he doesn't know it's his mother in front of him. To Aeneas, it's a woman dressed, we're told, like a young Spartan huntress, clad in weapons, or a woman from Thrace who likes to run with horses to tire them out. She looks like either, it seems. Very specific, both pretty badass, though. We could have just said Venus looks like a badass, powerful woman in armor, but this is an ancient epic, so it's all about similes. This woman, this badass woman ready to hunt or run with horses or generally just be independent and powerful, speaks to Aeneas, asking him if he's seen or heard of her sister. No, he says, I haven't seen or heard anyone. But what's your name? He asks. This isn't the face of a mortal woman, nor is this a voice of one. You're a goddess, surely. Maybe Apollo's sister? He means Diana, Artemis, but he says Apollo's sister, because patriarchy. Or perhaps you're a nymph, he decides. Tell us, he asks, where are we? We landed on this strange land and have no idea where we are, what people are here, to which gods we should offer. Venus assures Aeneas that she isn't a goddess, that it is simply the way of the Tyrian women to dress this way. 
She goes on to explain that they are in a Phoenician country, people of Tyr. You're in Libya, she says, and we are a race of people who are unbeatable in war, ruled by Queen Dido. Queen Dido. Sorry, never getting over this. Dido rules as queen. She fled from Tyr, a fugitive, Venus in disguise tells Aeneas. She goes on to explain what happened to lead Dido to flee her country and land in Libya. She was married and loved her husband horribly. But her brother came to power and he was brutal, a terrible king who was obsessed with gold, the gold of Dido's husband. He killed her husband and hid it from his sister, making her believe her husband could still be alive, until, one night as she slept, the ghost of her husband came to see her. He was restless. His body was unburied. This is how she learned what her brother had done, and she fled Phoenicia and took the gold that was revealed to her by her husband's ghost— She led a large group of people with her. Anyone who was over being tormented by her tyrannical brother was welcome and was more than happy to join her. They were more than happy to be led by a woman to a strange land. Fuck yeah. They landed in Libya and built the towering fort of Carthage that you can see over there, she tells Aeneas, pointing to the fort in the distance. Now, she says, they are building the civilization, choosing judges and establishing laws. They're putting together a governing body. Who are you? She asks now. Where have you come from? Where are you going? Oh, Aeneas says with a sigh, if I were to tell you everything we've been through, it would last the whole day and then some. We come from Troy, he tells her. You may have heard of or even seen the storm that drove us onto these shores. I am Aeneas, he tells the woman he doesn't know is actually his mother. I bring with me my household gods from Troy that I rescued from the enemy. The heavens know me, he adds. I am bound for Italy, the fatherland. Then, for good measure, he adds that he's a descendant of Jupiter himself, because this version has Venus as a daughter of Jupiter and not of Uranus's castration foam. My goddess mother told me where to go, that I should head to Italy to found a new civilization with Trojan blood. He tells her how many men and ships he's lost in the process, that now he wanders this land aimlessly. Venus stops him, telling him not to worry, that clearly he's loved by the gods because he has some men left, some ships have survived, and now they're safely on the shores of Carthage. And so finally, she reveals herself— With a step towards him, she transforms, revealing that she is indeed his mother, the goddess Venus. And in a very non-Greek way of handling this type of reveal, Aeneas yells at her. He immediately tries to leave, angry that she had to conceal herself in this way. Why couldn't she just show him who she was? Why did she have to mock him by disguising as something fake? Why can't I just speak to my mother and hear her voice? He's angry at a goddess and actually calling out the godly bullshit. Respect, Aeneas, this is very Roman of you. But even in his anger, Venus hopes to protect her son. So she covers him and the man he's with in a cloud, making them invisible, safe, as they approach and enter the city of Carthage as strangers. (laughs) 
The men continue on toward the city, marveling at it as they approach. It's impressive. Large buildings, paved streets, towering city gates. It's a work in progress, too. Aeneas and the man he's with watch as Tyrians continue to build the city around them, rolling carts and stones, dredging the harbor to allow it to fit taller ships, building the foundations of buildings, a theater even. They walk the streets of Carthage, still invisible in the cloud. They come upon a temple to Juno being built. It's fancy as hell, luxurious and decadent, offerings everywhere, depictions of Juno herself. Aeneas begins to feel at home, like he could be safe in the city of Carthage. And as he admires the work being put into the temple of Juno, he notices that on the walls they've depicted scenes from the Trojan War the war he's just come from and still thinks about with horror. The scenes of the war are extensive, and Aeneas relives the experience in detail, the good and the bad. He sees that they respect Priam, the king of Troy, even though he's fallen, but they idolize the Greeks, too. He wonders to his companion, is there anyone who doesn't know what we've been through? As Aeneas examines the scenes, The queen herself, accompanied by youths, walks down the stairs of the temple. It's so impressive that there are more similes involved. Dido takes her place on a throne in the temple and does her queenly duties, continuing to build her city, answering the queries of citizens, you know, the usual. Aeneas watches her, invisible in his cloud, entranced. But after some time, he and his companion see something that makes their hearts stop. Some of the men of their ships have walked into the temple, but not the men from the beaches where they arrived. They're men from ships that they were sure had sunk in the storm. Men they were absolutely certain had died, have just walked in. The two simultaneously want desperately to come out from their cloud disguise as they see these men, but they're also taken aback, so confused about how they could still be alive. So finally they decide to stay disguised for now at least, to see what happens, to hear what these men have to say about what's happened to them. The men approach Queen Dido, and the oldest one, Ileonius, speaks. He tells her who they are, that they are Trojans who have been sailing from sea to sea, driven by the horrible winds. He asks her to protect their ships, that they're good people who pray to the gods. He tells her they aren't there to harm the Carthaginians, not to raid or to ask anything of them except shelter and safety. He tells her that they're seeking land called Italy, that they're destined to reach it and found a city. He explains about the storm that hit suddenly and drove them to these shores. Then he talks about Aeneas, their leader, who was so good and just. Aloud, he hopes that Aeneas still lives. He asks Dido that they be permitted to return to what's left of their ship and for some supplies to do what they can to fix it. And, he says, if Aeneas still lives, they will set sail further on their journey to Italy. But, he explains, if Aeneas has died, instead they'll go to Sicily, the land that is so close to where they are now, where there is a city ruled by a man with Trojan blood, where they can live happily enough. They're nothing without Aeneas. 
Who hasn't heard of Aeneas? Dido answers, surprised. We've heard of him and his deeds in Troy, she assures the men. We know what happened there. If Aeneas lives, I will welcome him just as I welcome you, she tells him. He is most impressive and most famous. With that, Dido sends as many men as she can to go in search of Aeneas. They'll check all the coasts of Carthage in the hopes that he's washed up too and that he's alive. Dido tells the men before her that she will help them get to wherever they wish to go, whether it's to Italy if Aeneas lives or to Sicily if he has died. Or, she tells them, you can make your home here. We would welcome you like one of us. These people are pretty great, honestly, probably because they're ruled by a badass queen. Dido's the best, and nothing bad will happen to her. Anyway, as Dido speaks, going on about how amazing Aeneas is and how hopefully he's alive and well. Aeneas is under his cloud, just itching to jump out and scream, Here I am! I'm alive! Keep talking about how great and impressive I am, oh hot queen! Okay, he doesn't want to say all of that, but some of it, I'm sure. With a quick conference between Aeneas and the guy under the cloud with him, laying out that everything sure does seem safe, and there's even more of them alive than he thought, and it's probably fine to reveal themselves. Poof! The cloud that had hidden them is gone, and there stands Aeneas in all his shining glory. He probably put his hands on his hips, looked up confidently, gazing upon this group of people that has just been singing his praises. And remember, Aeneas is hot as hell. He's the son of Venus. He's gorgeous and always looks young and sexy. Thus, super hot and kind of shimmery Aeneas stands before these men who have longed to find him alive, and before an, I assume, equally hot queen who's just openly talked about how impressive he is and that she's heard of him from across the sea and... Oh, everyone wants to see him alive, and suddenly there he is. It's almost enough to give him a huge ego. Oh, nerds, thank you all for listening. This one's been fun. A quick note on the translation, though. I'm currently using David Ferry's translation. It's quite readable and honestly just pretty easy to find. It's a good enough translation. But I've just learned that the Aeneid has also been translated by Sarah Rudin, who translated the incredible version of the Golden Ass that I used when I told you the story of Cupid and Psyche. So as you might imagine, I desperately wish I was reading that version instead. But so far, it's been super tough to come across. So I'm working on it, but I think I have to special order it in. And well, that's quite expensive because it's a Yale University book. Anyway, that's all to say. If you come across that one, pick yourself up a copy because who doesn't love a translation by a woman? And do you remember my Cupid and Psyche episode? You probably do because I frequently hear that those are the favorites. So picture that woman translating this book. Anyway, hopefully I'll get it soon and I can still use it for this series. We shall see. I'm basically just rambling on about my needs at this point. As usual, though, you're all the best. Thank you all for listening and generally just being a part of this nerdy little group we've got. It's so much fun and I love how far we've come. Please come see me in Vancouver. It will be amazing. And also you'll make me feel better about myself. You're all the best. I am Liv and oh, I love this shit.
When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.